Hello, hello, and welcome back to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. It is the new year. It's January of 2021, and I am so grateful that 2020 is over. I know that everyone else probably feels the same. It's a new year, but unfortunately, racism has not gone anywhere. I wish we could say that we could leave racism in the past, (laughs) but that is not how it works. A new year means a time of reflection, reassessment, really resetting, and I think that is a fantastic way for us to really think about anti-racism work in general. It is a new opportunity for us to push the movement forward, to educate more people, to really try and ensure that anti-racism is at the top of people's minds as well. People want to be better in all aspects of their life, right? Like we want to eat healthier, we want to lose weight, we want to spend more time with our friends and our family. And why not have anti-racism be a part of all of that? I want to be a better person in terms of like physical health, mental health, but I also want to be better at anti-racism. And so with that self-improvement, self-assessment in mind, we are starting the year off with more anti-racism podcasts. I took a little bit of a break at the end of last year to really trying to figure out how to make this podcast as meaningful as possible. So I will have more content coming throughout 2021 and hope that you guys will all be a part of uh, how I can make this better. So really open to feedback. Would love to have engagement on social media. Email me if there's anything that you think you'd love to hear more about um, because that's this is this is what it's about. Since starting this podcast, I've had some really interesting conversations with people about race. They know that I'm doing this podcast, and so naturally, people want to talk about it with me, and I love it. Believe me, I'm very thankful for it. I've been afraid of interest waning on this topic since the media doesn't cover these issues anymore. Protests have slowed down, uh, and the news cycle has moved on. The racism still exists, though, everywhere, in every country on Earth and anti-black racism more specifically. White supremacy has an enduring legacy in the US and Canada because this mentality of race was brought over from Europe. It's why indigenous people were used and abused and gifted or brought Christianity. White supremacy justified the forced labor of enslaved Africans, justified the massacre and betrayal of indigenous people, and justified the limit of immigration from Asia or from South America and really around the world. This mentality has never gone away, though. Some laws have changed, some policies have been corrected over time, some apologies made, but make no mistake, the world has never fixed this completely wrong assertion about race and people of color as lesser than white people. And as I've mentioned before, this difference in treatment manifests in different and harmful ways. For example, people of color are paid less for the same role than white people. Black and brown people experience more and harsher treatment from police and the justice system. Black and brown children are disciplined more and more harshly than their white peers. And the examples go on and on. We've been taught that we are less valued by society because the color of our skin 
dictates how we should be treated. And this is a legacy from colonization that still exists today. Racism is a global problem. Despite the Black Lives Matter and civil rights movements starting in the U.S., combating racial injustice has very quickly been taken up around the world. Europe, I have bad news. You've got a racism issue. In France, a survey of 5,000 young men with African or Arab ancestry carried out by the Council of Europe found that they are 20 times as likely to be stopped by police as other French people. In the UK, there was a 2018 Windrush scandal in which people from the Caribbean, mostly elderly people, who had lived in Britain for decades, were being denied services, losing their jobs, and even facing deportation because of tightened immigration enforcement in 2012. It's not just the old colonizers like France, Belgium, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and the UK, Russia, Eastern Europe, Nordic countries, you are not immune either. Maria Tunkara, a biracial Russian blogger from St. Petersburg, was subjected to bullying and threats online after posting on social media about the prevalence of racism in Russia. She was also contacted by the prosecutor's office and told to stop putting malicious content online. Anti-black racism is widespread throughout Asia as well. China has some widely reported anti-African immigration policies. There have been physical attacks on Africans in the country. In India, anti-black racism is widespread. It is something that is not hidden at all. It's actually quite open. And there are numerous stereotypes about black people, a lot of them related to the perceived intelligence of black people, that they are stupid, lazy. A lot of these stem from um, tropes that come from colonization. And India also has a very serious colorism issue rooted in their caste system and history with Great Britain as their colonizer. In March 2017, Endurance Amalawa was beaten by a mob as he made his way through a mall near Delhi. He was a Nigerian student studying in India. Just before the attack on Endurance, an Indian teenager had died from a drug overdose. And unfortunately, the issue of drug abuse and selling of drugs has been, for some reason, connected to Africans living in India. And so when he and his brother were walking through this mall, they were attacked by a mob. Endurance didn't know the Indian teen who died. He had no idea what was going on. But the mob saw him, a black man, walking around and decided to attack him. What about South America? Oh, God. They have a long and storied history of discrimination against its Afro-communities, starting in the time of slavery. Around 56% of Brazilians identify as black. They are the largest population of African descent outside of Africa. Yet black people make up just 18% of Congress, 4.7% of executives in Brazil's 500 largest companies. They make up 75% of murder victims and 75% of those killed by police. In the last 20 years, Buenaventura, Colombia's Afro population has faced a wave of killings, torture, sexual violence, and enforced disappearances at the hands of paramilitaries to take control of their ancestral communities for waterfront property development. 
Lastly, Africa. Yes, there's racism in Africa, mostly by the non-black countries like South Africa, no introduction needed there, or North African countries like Egypt, Algeria, and Libya. Algeria and Tunisia bar foreign Africans from obtaining residency papers, unless they are students. Majority black African countries are dealing with colorism issues at an alarming rate, and mostly as a legacy from slavery and colonization. In countries throughout East Africa, dark-skinned people are often referred to as slaves and are considered dirty and poor. In my research to try and understand trends of tolerance and racism across the world, I came across this really interesting study that was done by two Swedish economists examining whether economic freedom made people more or less racist. So if a country has more wealth, does that mean that they are less racist compared to countries who are economically less developed? On the map, and mind you, I will link to the show notes and to social media as well, the blue countries are least likely to express racist attitudes, while the red countries are more likely to express racist attitudes. The research was done through surveys of people from around the world. The survey asked respondents to identify the kinds of people they would not want as a neighbor. Some respondents, picking from a list, chose people of a different race as those they would not like to have as a neighbor. The more frequently that people in that country gave that answer, the less racially tolerant you would call that society. So, what did the data find? Well, the data found that the countries more likely to embrace a racially diverse neighborhood included the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and most of Latin America. This, however, did not include Venezuela or the Dominican Republic. Those were found to be much less racially tolerant. India and Jordan were found to be the least tolerant countries in the world. Now, of course, there are a number of things to be wary of in this kind of study. It's likely that a lot of people lied, so they may not want to come across as racist in the survey and may have given an answer different from honestly what they would have thought. Also, some of the surveys were conducted in countries recently and some quite later. So the surveys weren't occurring at the same point in time in history, and so there could be a lot of like contextual nuance um, nationally that could affect the kinds of answers that the survey respondents gave. Although someone might say they're not racist and fill out a survey accordingly, we see everyday people acting in racist ways, discriminating against people of color, then turning around and saying that they don't have a racist bone in their body. Donald Trump is the ultimate joke of an example, but he said this exact same thing. And, well, we all know that's not true. We are going to take a very short break and we'll be right back. Hey, did you know if you're a community organization that would like to share events or updates, feel free to reach out for a mention here on the podcast. All of our contact information is in the show notes. (laughs) 
Since I'm a Canadian born and raised, this is a subject extremely important to me, and although I love my country, there's some serious racial injustice that needs to be addressed. As I mentioned earlier, white supremacy came from Europe in the form of colonization. White Europeans used white supremacy to justify the murder and enslavement of human beings for money, land, and power. In Canada, it starts with the French and British coming to this country, coming to this land, making nice with the people who lived here, who were indigenous communities who lived here for thousands of years. We have evidence of that. And for a while, settler and indigenous communities managed to live side by side. The first Europeans would not have survived even one winter in Canada, if not for the help of the indigenous communities that they had befriended. Um, the indigenous communities had shared with them different uh, medicines that they could use to heal themselves, to take care of themselves. Um, and so it should be noted that settlers would even exist here if not for indigenous communities. Prior to the 1800s, settling the land was not the first priority for Europeans. The Europeans were exchanging goods for furs and meat with indigenous communities. They also went on fishing and whaling expeditions before returning to Europe with fish and oil. With exception of trading posts, primarily along the St. Lawrence River and the coastline, colonial powers did not attempt to settle the country on a large scale. When cheaper fabric was established in Europe, the fur trade really started to decline in importance, and in its place, the gold rush took over. Europeans moved further west into the continent, settling in the prairies as farmers, and this is when the relationship between settlers and indigenous people really turned. Settlers started encroaching more on indigenous land, resources, and their way of life. No longer viewed as allies against military threats or for economic benefits, British administrators began the long road towards quote-unquote civilizing indigenous people, which continued for the next 150 years, really until the present day. I don't want to go too much into the relationship between indigenous communities and the first settlers slash colonizers, because this is going to be an entirely different episode. There is a lot of context and content there, and I want to make sure that we have enough time to dive into it. So I'll just say that the relationship completely devolved into what it is today. After decades and generations of the reservation system, residential school system, broken treaties, 60 scoop, broken promises and policies from politicians and the Canadian government, the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities has been fractured. White supremacy in Canada has affected the relationship with Indigenous communities, but has also affected and impacted its relationship with communities of colour. From the very moment Canada opened its doors for immigration, it has been very clear in who they would like in the country and who they would not like in the country. Canadian politicians and policies overtly distinguished between immigrants of preferred races, who initially would include British and French citizens, uh, and later other European nationalities, and non-preferred races, people from Asia, the Caribbean, and Africa. A number of 
policies were in place to ensure that these non-preferred races wouldn't enter Canada. There were policies that included the head tax, the Exclusion Act, the Continuous Passage Requirement, and the 1910 Immigration Act. The aim of all of these policies was to reduce and to constrict immigration of people of color. Meanwhile, they were very aggressive in trying to recruit Europeans to settle to Canada. All of these different policies also had a gendered lens to them. Canada at the time was happy to have people of color if they were men because they could do physical labor, but women were restricted from coming because the belief was that women would, of course, first give birth to children, but if there was no women here, people of color would be would feel that they'd have to leave the country to go back to their families. Some policies had different effects on different communities of color. I'm going to do future episodes, uh, future podcast episodes, about how each of these policies affected communities of color because it is really nuanced um, and there's so much information. And I know I say that a lot, but it's true. There's just so much out there that I learned. So we've discussed the policies that Canada had in place to restrict people of color from coming in. But we know that, of course, people of color did make it into Canada. Canada is definitely one of those countries that likes to think that it's better than the U.S. because we didn't have slavery here. Correction, though. We didn't have widespread slavery that built up our economy like it did in the U.S., but slavery absolutely existed in Canada. The first documented black slave arrived in Quebec City in 1628, just 20 years after the founding of New France. The boy was originally from Madagascar, and he was given the name Olivier Lejeune. Wealthy families had slaves in their households, either indigenous or black people, mostly in what is now Ontario and Quebec. When Britain took over New France, about 7% of the colony was enslaved, or around 4,000 people out of the 60,000 population. Two-thirds of these slaves were indigenous, known as pennies, and the other third were African, who cost twice as much and were a symbol of status. Here's a quote from Afua Cooper, who is a historian in Canada. Slavery was the dominant condition of life for black people in this country for well over 200 years, so we have been enslaved for longer than we have been free. The lives of these slaves are not well documented in the history books, but through research, we better understand what their lives were like, who they were, and how they lived. I am a huge fan of Charmaine Nelson, a professor and an author, who's chronicled the lives of some of these slaves through newspaper clippings posted to retrieve their runaway slaves. I'm going to post some of these in the show notes as well and post it on social media so you can take a look at what some of these newspaper clippings looked like, the kind of language that they used, how they described slaves. In Canada, we love to talk about the Underground Railroad in Canadian history, that slaves from the United States were able to escape here for freedom and glory, but the lives of newly freed Black people was anything but peaceful. Black people who came to Canada were also subject to horrific violence and abuse, ultimately being segregated to their own communities, which lacked basic services and had very little funding. Black children were required to attend Negro schools. Black families were restricted from buying and holding land. 
black families were unable to access services with white Canadians, such as dining in restaurants, attending movies, accessing recreational facilities, and were unable to obtain well-paying jobs despite their educational qualification. You may have seen the Heritage Minute commercial where Viola Desmond, a black woman, refused to give up her seat in the whites-only section of a movie theater in Nova Scotia. Black people were only allowed to sit upstairs in what was often referred to as the crow's nest after Jim Crow segregation or the monkey cage. Viola Desmond was arrested, jailed, and convicted without legal representation. She was charged with attempting to defraud the provincial government based on her alleged refusal to pay a one-cent amusement tax, which was the difference in tax between movie tickets for upstairs versus downstairs. Despite being a successful Black female entrepreneur, and despite receiving help from the Black community of Nova Scotia to fight these charges, Viola was unable to get the charges against her removed. She passed away with the charges still on her record. In 2010, Viola Desmond was granted a pardon by Nova Scotia Lieutenant Governor Mayan Francis at a ceremony in Halifax. Desmond was inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame in 2017 under the Philanthropy and Humanities category. She was named a National Historic Person by the Canadian government. And for all of you who carry cash, you've probably seen her face on the $10 bill. I'll link the Heritage Minute commercial uh, in the show notes. It's a fantastic little clip and is really important, I think, especially for educating Canadians on the kind of civil rights movement that was taking place in Canada. Although I am thrilled that Viola Desmond's story is much more shared, it's publicly acknowledged and has come to light the kind of racism that she experienced, I can't help but wonder about all the other people of color throughout Canada's history who will not be acknowledged in the same way because history has forgotten them. Actually, more than just being forgotten, I think what we forget is just how systemic and institutionalized this racism was. It was in the court system. It was in just society in general. It was in our schools. It was in our hospitals. And that racism hasn't gone anywhere. That institutional racism still exists and has gone throughout our entire history without being acknowledged in the right way. I am very happy to report, though, that more Canadians are starting to see racism as a serious problem in Canada compared to just a year ago. A lot of it can probably be attributed to the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, having those racial injustice conversations. The Ipsos poll found that 60% of Canadians think that racism is a serious problem. Whether it's fairly serious at 36%, one of the most serious problems at 20%, or the most serious problem facing Canada today at 3%. Okay, so to summarize, we've talked about Canada's relationship with Indigenous people, the way it began, and unfortunately the way it's kind of continued and and, uh, continued to this day. We've talked about Canada's immigration policies and how it's affected communities of colour. We've also talked about the experiences of Black people in Canada and demystifying this part of our Canadian identity that slavery didn't exist in Canada. I haven't gone into the experiences of East Asian and South Asian immigrants to Canada, but that's because it's going to be its own podcast episode. 
Did you know that the first Chinese immigrants to Canada came over 200 years ago? I didn't either before I started diving into this. So we'll discuss that and all of the different immigration policies, the kind of stereotypes and difficulties they had not only coming to Canada, but assimilating and being treated as equals. Today's podcast episode was recorded before the riots that took place in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol building. I want to acknowledge that this horrific act took place uh, at the behest of President Donald Trump, and it so clearly demonstrates exactly what we've been trying to talk about on this podcast, about the need for people to be really educated about what white supremacy, what anti-black racism looks like, uh, not just in the United States, though, everywhere in the everywhere in the world. I did have a plan for next week's podcast episode, but I think it's important to address what's going on um, today. So next week will be a special episode that is fully about what happened, what took place at the Capitol building, um, and to shed some light on on some of the conversations that are happening ar- around race and racism at this point in time. So this is the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your continued support. And I will see you next week on the next episode. Bye.